Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. We're joined by Sarah Lippett, who spoke to us from her home in California, just as the US were waiting for the result of the presidential election. We're 24 episodes in, with some more recorded and ready to release in coming weeks. And Ben, as is evident in Sarah's story, despite the commonality between folks, being in a band is a very personal experience. It is. Um, I think it is very much an experiential thing. And this is a, a really great example of a very different story, a rare story, for, certainly for us, um, in terms of someone coming to music in a band much later in life and not going through the traditional kind of coming of age routes that we would associate ourselves with you know, how people come to, to be in a band. Yeah, it was sort of almost as if being in a band had sort of crept up on Sarah. And during and after our conversation, she was having moments of realisation and remembering funny or significant things that took place for her. Yeah, she was. I think it was. Um, I think you'll get a sense of it from the from the way that Sarah holds herself through the conversation. That um, she very much had to push beyond her sort of comfort zone in order to take herself into the the space where she could experience being in a band. And yet she she did. She went through that. You know, and uh, and all credit to her for that because I think it wasn't it wasn't the easiest of journeys. But she's looking back on it, having been able to kind of to go through that process and and come out of it with some really fond memories from it and some good stories too. Yeah, definitely. And and as it, as has, as her story sort of emerges through the episode, sort of almost for her as well, talking about it. Um, and then it kind of gets uh, richer and you start to get a bigger picture and there's some real contrasts in there. Um, uh, and then you get the, the, the burst of music at the end, which is really exciting. Um, and actually that, that contrasting thing, it's almost like a, it's almost like a, you could, with a little bit of tweaking, you could turn it into a John Hughes, a John Hughes movie, <laughs> you know, by day <laughs> yeah. living one particular life and then by night, um, you know, being in a, in a in a rock band and being this other sort of personality, those those two contrasts, you could really see them being, you know, some kind of uh, like a, you know, a John Hughes movie from the 80s. It was great. Yeah. And uh, like you say, that moment when the song hits in at the end and you're thinking throughout the conversation is the what's the listener going to predict in terms of the music that Sarah's going to have made? It's probably not that kind of uh, it's not what you're going to come to at the end of it. And the fact that she kind of transplanted herself from from UK into the midst of New York, which is a, you know, a city with such a glorious history of music, you know, musical history, particularly in that sort of, you know, the, the sort of punk era and everything that evolved from that scene around CBGBs. And, um, you know, she's been in, in and amongst it and experiencing that city herself and having, having a little slice of it, you know, much later than that, but having a little slice of it, of that experience for herself too. Yeah, it's a, it, it's just occurred to me you talking about it like that and and thinking about what she does reveal in the interview that actually it would be a really a really fascinating read. I I I can imagine Sarah's story emerging you know as a as a written story um you know much more strongly than perhaps it does in in our conversation with her even because because of the the sort of realization she was having and actually you know going and forming a band and, and playing around New York in places that don't exist anymore. It's sort of a, a disappearing side of that um, city um, would be would be really 
excellent to kind of read. I think I think she'd get her story out well on the written page. I think she would. I mean, it's a very it's a very uh, you know a very sort of gentle and sat back conversation that the listener's going to come to today, but a, a, you know a very worthwhile one to you know kind of to, to stick with it and to kind of appreciate the the different background that Sarah came from and and the fact that she has. You know, she has largely chosen subsequently to kind of walk away from music. And she, I think she, you know, well, yeah, I don't want to reveal too much in terms of what her, what her aspirations and inspirations were. That, that, you know, that's better to come out through the story, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Well, no doubt many people will be putting up their Christmas decorations this weekend. And frankly, you don't need all of those glittery stars cluttering up your shelves. So please feel free to hang some on our branch of the apple Christmas tree. And we'll put you on our nice list, won't we, Ben? We will indeed. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and on that fine Christmassy note, shall we go over to our conversation with Sarah Lippitt on episode 24 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Uh, yeah, so my name's Sarah Lippitt. I'm uh, originally from the UK, out in California these days, but spent most of my musical years in New York. Um, and the song to play out with is is called All Right. Uh, it's a song that came into my head in the shower. Uh, I had a studio apartment on East 11th Street at the time between B and C. Well, thank you for sharing it with us and for com- for coming on the podcast. You say you're in Cal- California. Whereabouts in California? Right, California. right now, uh, Studio City, California, North Hollywood. Um, sometimes called. Um, I moved down here just two months. It's a pandemic move, actually, on my part. Uh, I was up in San Francisco. The office is entirely remote these days. Um, obviously, can't really go back to the UK um, to see family, friends. And I have a very good friend that lives down here, who's actually also from the UK. So we kind of teamed up for a little, especially for the for the Christmas Thanksgiving period. It's kind of nice to at least have somewhere to go. Uh, I hadn't been in San Francisco for very long, so I didn't really have quite the base that I had in New York at the time. Such a such a strange time for you in in the US at the moment, eh? Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, we did we did time this to be uh, to be uh, relevant on the timing side. Um, yeah, it's been I guess it was last week was the strange week. Um, we um, we actually were one of the companies that was fortunate enough they gave us all the day off, which was quite nice. We had a nice midweek day off. Um, I went, I am actually a US citizen. I voted in both previous elections, obviously in California. So it's, uh, my vote, I think is one of the less meaningful ones in the United States. But, um, yeah, just dropped my ballot off at a box. And then uh, actually, yeah, I like to run and write little things in the street. So I wrote, I voted in a little kind of run and then came back home and, but you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It doesn't feel like obviously Sunday, I think, or Saturday, Saturday was a big day. Uh, somewhat anticlimactic. Uh, I think everyone's still waiting to see exactly what's going, how it's going to play out. But California is a nice place to be if uh, you know, we're sort of a little bit further away from everything. Well, so it feels for me anyway. Anyhow. Well, we're going to go even further away from that now, talking to you, because um, I wanted to ask if we could start with a chat about your mum. And her and her influence on you on you sort of musically speaking. So she moved to London from Germany largely because of the Beatles. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, well, so she says. Who who knows? <laughs> tell us. But uh, yeah. So obviously, you know, the Beatles had a pretty big presence in Hamburg, um, and she sort of was a teenager in the sixties, um, 
and then came to, came to London and then actually it was just the start of the common market, which is kind of the exact opposite to what it is today. But um, she was you know, permitted to stay and, and she's been there ever since. Uh, yeah, she loved the Beatles. I think we were actually just having a discussion going back to things that we keep with us throughout our lives, but she has quite the collection of old records. And I don't know if you know, but they translated a lot of those Beatles records into German. Uh, so you have, wow. you know, sie liebte hier, ja, ja, and <laughs> and, uh, and and such. So we were talking about how maybe we should we should uh, see how much exactly they're worth, and maybe get a nice holiday out of it. But oh yeah, did your did your did your mum ever see them in Germany? Was she was she in Hamburg or where whereabouts was she? I don't, know, I don't think so, you know. But I should ask because I don't know definitively the answer to that question. Um, I don't. I think she would have been too young for the Hamburg years. Actually, thinking about it, that was early sixties, um, and after that, when they were playing in the in the clubs in Hamburg, with obviously Stuart Sutcliffe was the drummer back then as well. So I don't think so, but I would have to double check. But she had a big influence on you, musically speaking, your mum. Again, I, the, so the joke is my mother is tone deaf, um, which is. Largely true. Uh, she definitely enjoys music, but, but she doesn't sing or play. It's my dad actually that played the guitar. But the one thing my mother has and what I have is we like we like numbers, we like maths. And um, I'm so used to saying math now that it's funny to put the S on the end. But uh, yeah. we like, <laughs> I actually studied math at university. That was my favorite subject. Um, and I do find and having met a bunch of musicians along the way, there's there's definitely two kinds or probably way more than two kinds. But I was always pretty envious of those people that could just sit at the piano or guitar and just and play. Whereas in my head, it kind of goes like I, I was very good at theory. I learned the you know, popular combinations, what didn't work, what did work. Uh, I know when to modulate. I um, Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not that person that can just sit at the piano and play. I'm not a super creative person like that, but I am definitely have some creativity when it comes to numbers. And I think that's that's kind of where it came, how I came about. And then obviously just playing the guitar when you're young is cool. There was a, do you remember, there was a very strange Australian television show on TV in the late eighties, early nineties called Tuggle. And he got a guitar, it was, it's pretty, it was one, you know, back in the day where you never really knew what was gonna be on TV. And every so often you got a nice surprise. Um, you know, we didn't have the radio times or, well, you needed the radio times and the TV times and, and you know, as well. Um, and so he got a guitar, I think, and, and that, I don't know, they started a band and it just looked like fun. So that was really, I'm not sure she inspired me for that, but she certainly gave me a solid base and knowledge <laughs> of, of the music. Came up to we've, um, we've spoken with people before about how affecting and important it is to grow up in a house where music is played and shared. What was on in your house and what would have been the first kind of music that really landed with you? Oh, it, was, it would have been a combination of the Beatles, Paul, Paul Simon and Bob Dylan. Uh, though that were well, those were the rec on record on vinyl um that was what was played uh and then uh you know some german christmas carols i think <laughs> at christmas time but uh yeah those, those three would have been on fairly steady rotation i would say pretty like, a decent amount of classical too so i started playing the trumpet and the piano when i was well, when i went to junior school um so yeah, I mean, the, my mother always liked classical music. She made sure to know about it. And so we'd put that on from time to time. But mainly the first three, that's what I remember. That's a good education, eh? Good introduction. 
It was good. Yeah, especially as I kind of got to follow in not the footsteps a little bit, but coming to America and uh, especially New York with Paul Simon. You know, he's from Queens. Um, so it was, I actually remember the first time I set foot in New York and, you know, it was listening to his songs, American Tune in particular. Uh, all such New York references where I ended up living for 16 years. But I think they definitely contributed to my love of New York and the city. And you said your dad played guitar. So was there, was he playing music in the house when you were growing uh, up? Not so much, no. Um, no, he just sort of, he knew how to play. Uh, I think it was actually a friend's brother. My friend's, well, one of my close friends, twin brother. He he was the one that was sort of playing and, at the time. And, and he, he was the person that I was around the most that, that would actually play. Uh, and we, you know, and he, he sort of, again, with this, this funny TV show that, came to mind um that that, that was more you know, what what got me into actually playing for myself and you could still go to the library and i remember going to the library in those days and buying and, and borrowing the uh the uh, Sutton lending library it was actually the largest lending library in europe i think when it was built in the in the sort of 80s as well um but yeah you know i take out the books and just try, try and play there's a there's an old beatles book actually that i have now my mother bought back in the day um, that I still carry around that was, you know, had the nice pictures. There was always a, the, you know, the skit with that, but I need the little pictures with the uh, the dots on and everything. So, again, just sitting on my own using those books. I didn't have any brothers and sisters, so it was quite easy to find that time. And how did you make your way from, from the music that was playing with your mum and dad to the third, sort of first sort of music that you were into? I'm not sure. Um, I think back, I don't know if it, there's really that leap. I think it more, it's something that came back later, like, as a older teenager, like, well, maybe in my early 20s when I was first in New York. Um, I think the leap was more, again, these my friend's brother who was really into Guns N' Roses, and I remember really trying to like it, and I didn't really like it, but I tried hard. I um, I tried equally hard with uh, Michael Jackson, which I feel a little bit vindicated on at this point, <laughs> but um, uh, it was, I wasn't really a cool kid at all, you know. Um, I had, like, I think I'd, I'd, I'd gotten like a, what was it? Um, New Kids on the Block album and I, and I had a Now 13, I think that was, or Smash Hits, Poll Winners Party 88, like cassette. Yeah, brilliant. And I tried to listen to Capital. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't on top of it one bit. Um, but I did like playing and yeah, there were certain certain records that I like. I'm trying to think of some of the early ones, but obviously I came, came, uh, I, I miss Nirvana, definitely did not catch on to Nirvana, but the, later the Stone Roses and then I was probably 14 when the Blur Oasis Wars, 13, 14 when that all happened. So heavily just, I mean, everyone liked music in the, in the 90s. It was like, a, that was more of the, 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 the happy, happy Britpop kind of era. I think that was probably the biggest driver. So when did you make that um, uh, step from you know playing piano and trumpet and um try, trying to play, play start playing guitar to actually getting involved with playing with other people oh so well i was during university i came to new york in the summers and actually i had a great friend also called sarah um and she was working at a publishing agency uh, and she had a couple of friends at the agency that actually one of them played mandolin and the, another one played well maybe the other one didn't play i can't remember so well but um that was the first introduction to actually sort of going around and going to gigs and seeing friends at gigs and this kind of thing. So again, a lot later, I wasn't doing it. I wasn't, I was definitely not 
cool enough as a teenager. I think I went once to maybe once to an Oasis show at, at Milton Keynes Bowl or something like that. But I wasn't I wasn't that that person in the room, you know, in the in the class at all. Uh, but yeah, she got me into it, and then and this guy uh, had a we used to laugh at the time. It's such a fancy neighborhood now, but back in the day, he lived in, in what's Williamsburg. And um, he had made a recording studio on his bed. I remember this. So he, he somehow like had his bed kind of enclosed. And we never saw it. We just heard about this mysterious. Maybe we could see it again. I should have made more notes before I jumped on with you guys. But uh, that was pretty interesting to me. And just recording and kind of creating something was interesting. And I was sort of determined after that to go back to New York and try my own luck doing it. Um, and that's sort of what started that that whole scene. And actually going to New York, I didn't take a piano or a trombone or a trumpet with me um, just because I just came with two suitcases. Um, so a guitar was pretty easy to pick up and play. I'm really, I'm really fascinated by, because um, we haven't spoken to anybody who has... Um, not kind of tracked into playing in bands um you know through through school and then messing around with friends and then there's just been this kind of like natural progression in, uh, but you were you're saying that you didn't do any of that until you until you got to new york you know you experiment with 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 instruments but not focused on being in a band at all and then just by virtue of being around some people that you were working with <laughs> kind of fell into playing together and doing some DIY recording and and that's when the the kind of bug bit you. Well, so I'd be actually just remembering I'd be remiss not to mention my friend Shelley at, at high school who who did try to put a band together and I think we oh. did play all together twice. Um we were at the same girls school for 7 years. So I was in the concert band, I was in the local orchestra. I was uh it, you know, I played I definitely played with other people but in a far more not guitar, put it that way like that. I was <laughs> But she did try, and and I think I think I actually played bass for that band, and not bass. Like I just played the bass for strings on a guitar because I think that's what we needed at the time. But um, we probably played. I mean, just I remember thinking no one had a garage or no one had a place where we could really plug in or anything like that. Um, so no, it didn't didn't really come about until moving to New York. And how did that first band come about then? Oh, so this was my friend Eric who uh, who pinged me on. Friendster. I don't know if you remember that social media site. Uh, <laughs> it was actually written up. I remember chatting with my friend on the beach in 2002. It was in Time Out magazine that this there was this social network and it was a whole new thing and you had to be invited. And I asked him if he'd invite me. And you know that was a early early Facebook sort of, but nothing to do with which university you went to or anything like that. And um, Suddenly, this this guy pinged me over over Friendster, and his name Eric Eric Barragan. He'd been in a couple of Spanish rock bands, and he was looking to. So he he kind of come up the more traditional way through school. His father was a big guitarist, uh, super fun guy. He wanted a girl to play guitar, so that that's how I got my first like <laughs> band membership, just by being female, really <laughs> being able to play guitar. Um, and he kind of knew the New York scene a bit better. He knew how to rent um, uh, like a, a rehearsal studio um and yeah it was all kind of a bit of a whirlwind but he was great it was his the drummer was one of his close friends from growing up he would sing he would encourage me to sing uh 
we did a lot of stuff in English and Spanish, which was pretty interesting. And he, he made, he, he got me to play some acoustic shows as well. So it was kind of a nice, he taught me about tube amps. I didn't know anything about that uh, then either. So it was, yeah, <laughs> it was all a bit ongoing. No, it sounds brilliant. It sounds brilliant. Why, what was his specific reason for wanting a female guitarist in the band? I, I should have asked him before we, before we got on as well. <laughs> I should have asked him <laughs> questions. Um, I think he just wanted something different. Uh, there were a lot of all male bands back then in New York wearing skinny jeans and Converse All Stars, and, and I, you know, potentially just wanted something a bit different. But he, he, he was into vocals. Um, he's he's a good he's a good musician as well. Like he, he definitely has more of a feel for music than I do. I, you know, I'll, I'll diligently document everything, write it down, and kind of make sure all the chords align and that that we have a, a, a fully structured song, which wasn't always the case with a lot of folks that I worked with. Um, but he definitely complimented that. And his brother is a great musician as well. He's, he, he, he's one of these people that I'm so envious of, sorry, that, that can just play. Um, so, we, you know, it was, a, it was definitely a, a fun step in that direction. Did, did he have a good idea about the music that he wanted to make? Did you come to it with a, with a bunch of songs written already? He had some, yeah, yeah. And actually the first draft of the, the song we'll play like that, you know, I came up whilst I was playing with him in, in that band. He definitely had a, a bunch of English, Spanish songs. Um, we did do a little demo, we recorded four songs. Two, two were kind of mine, let's say, and two were his. Um, at that point we had a, a bass player actually that we picked up also through friend stuff, or Eric had done all that. Uh, a guy called Todd, he came from Vermont. And uh, he was kind of an interesting compliment. We were, we were a sort of odd bunch. <laughs> our, our little band but again so the music scene in Burlington Vermont I think is more of a typical college town than growing up in South London suburbs um, where you have the gigs and you have like the local band that's super popular so again it was a, you know n another learning experience when he came on board but yeah we recorded three songs in a warehouse near Newark New Jersey with a with a guy that was living in that warehouse and kind of trying to make his way um, and, and you know they came out like, like now they they sound a bit they they definitely sound a bit amateurish when I listen to them now but uh, they were a good precursor and it was definitely a good experience. Yeah, what was that experience like? How long were you in the studio for? Probably just two to three days, not that long. And um, it was very casual. I, I actually I couldn't really comment because I only had two more experiences after that really, but and all of which I would deem to be casual. Um, there were, you know, there were plenty of cans of beer and, and not too many retakes. Um, I think actually Eric ended up overdubbing some of the stuff that I'd done because I wasn't that good at it, <laughs> or like some of the solos or something. I can't remember what he had to do again. You can just about hear my voice in the background at times. Um, so it was, it was, it was a, fun, it was really fun though. I, I remember that. And what was the, what was the vibe of the band? What was the, what was the music that was influencing you around at that time? So, I mean, me, I was still very much on my in British, like, uh, Oasis. I mean, so the nice thing about being in New York back then was that when, when all these bands would come through, like Oasis or Radiohead so much, but Coldplay even in the early days, you could see them and you could see them at relatively small venues because they weren't popular, uh, well, as popular as they were in, in the UK. So I was still very much on that. I remember buying Standing on the Shoulder of Giants, the, the Oasis album actually had New York on the, um, on the cover um the uh gosh, i'm trying to remember the um husker do was a favorite of the bass player um and then era 
like he he liked a lot of Spanish music as well, actually, and he liked some stuff. Uh, you know, he liked a lot of a, a lot of the heavier stuff a bit as well. Um, but I remember more the bass player. He, you know, you will know us by the Trail of the Dead. I think I'm trying to remember if it was that time. Sometimes the years get a bit blurred, but definitely Husker do. And then he actually really got me into a band called the Thermals. Um, yeah, and I yeah, can't yeah. remember if that was before or after that particular recording session. That would have been in 2004. Um, but and I'd say like we had that a little bit of a sound like the thermals are kind of brief, like short songs that, um, <laughs> that weren't that complicated, I suppose. I don't know if I'm insulting the thermals. I don't want to do that, but it was definitely a lot of time. So what was the scene like then for when you were in uh, um, playing in New York at that time, getting to play in some interesting places and, and how did you find the scene? It was maybe already passed a little bit. Because, so it was sort of late 90s, early 2000, 2000, 2001. I think it really had a heyday. And that's when my, more I was going to the shows. And that was with the Strokes and that band called Interpol were kind of coming up. Uh, I think I arrived in New York kind of really on the cusp of some severe gentrification. Um, so places kept moving around. I'm trying to think of one of my first gigs was at this place called Acme Underground, which has long since, I think, become luxury condos or some very yeah. fancy, uh, fancy restaurant. There was a place, actually, it was kind of before um, the, the 14th Street all the way to the west. Uh, that was still pretty pretty meat market, like, it, well, it was called the meat packing district. That was it. Mm. It's still called that. Uh, it just slipped my mind. Um, but there was a bar called The Cooler where uh, we play and they actually had the meat hooks still up. Like it was, I don't know if it was a gimmick or whether they just didn't have enough money to outfit it completely. But <laughs> that, that, has, that has gone. Um, but those were sort of some of the first places. Uh, we did CBGBs back, obviously that's gone now, but they had a, a bar next door that would kind of, like I want to say accept walk-ins or like, I don't know how we, how we call ourselves. We certainly didn't bring a crowd of 50. I mean, we might have brought 20 people if we were lucky and we knew them all. Um, there was a fun place on Second Avenue called the Continental that was just really, really a dive bar. Uh, that and again, these are like the early places. And then as we as kind of time went along, places became a bit more sort of dive bar chic. So there was a place called Trash Bar in Williamsburg. We played at Bat Baby. Um, Chris North actually, the the actor, had a place called the Cutting Room. I need to remember exactly what that was. That was more like a stage, etc. So you could, you know, go there, go there and play. But yeah, it definitely evolved somewhat. And we found that the gigs and even the studios themselves would just be pushed further and further into Brooklyn. So we ended up, you know, playing a little bit in Bushwick, and then that was towards the end. It, it kind of evolved. Um, you had these agents that would run around and try and get you gigs as well. It was it was quite funny. I, I don't know how they were reimbursed at all. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it would be like, if we were playing at one of the better venues, it would definitely be at midnight. It was very hard to get like an 8, 9 p.m. slot. I was lucky enough, I was lucky enough to play some shows in New York in uh, the late 90s, 90, 95, I'm going to say. And uh, yeah, it was always midnight. You know, <laughs> Uh, we did like a week of shows around around uh manhattan and uh you know brilliant absolutely brilliant but the, yeah it was always five band bill for most yeah. of them you know 
uh, you're yeah. going on at midnight. But it was great. It's you know fantastic experience. And there yeah. were still people there at midnight. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It was I never mean, really yeah, a problem. We, <laughs> yes, we played. Uh, well, played. Got to play CBGBs, but played. There was one bar called. Uh, oh, it was a. It was a club called Club Squeezebox, which was a. It was um, a gay bar, um, and we were the only band on. And it was it was it was quite a full on venue, you know. <laughs> we were on. We were the entertainment for the evening. I've got. A, I have got a video of us being introduced by this incredible drag uh, compare um, bringing us on, and we're just these little wide eyed, <laughs> brilliant <laughs> British boys in our baggy shorts. Pushed on the... Oh my life! Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Just you know, turning up, turning up in a yellow taxi and. You know, oh, you were lucky so you didn't have to drag all your equipment with you because that was half the battle didn't. as well in those no. days. No, no. Well, we we flew we flew over with a sampler and and guitars and everything else. We just grabbed there. Um, wow. Yeah. Somehow, I don't know. I don't even know how we did it. It's incredible. To I remember think that bass amp that we had to drag up and down the stairs, and I mean, oh, it was. And the <laughs> drum, we had to have come with a full set of drums. I think a lot of the time yeah, it was yeah. expected. I that was um you know and then of course you're packing up the van again at two o'clock in the morning thinking to be at work in six hours <laughs> well talking about your work you had a really interesting contrast going on at that time because you were working for the banks in the city so how did that what was the 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 sort of big divide between working in the city and then going and playing shows how did that marry up <laughs> well it was a you know that yeah I mean, not great. It certainly caused some friction within the band. Um, and But work-wise, it was, you know, I mean, we worked until midnight anyway. Uh, I somehow made it work. I can't even remember specific times, but somehow I was able to make it work. Uh, I remember when I first started working, I, I, you know, I didn't really tell anyone that's what I was up to because I didn't know, if, you know, I just kind of kept myself to myself a little bit. Um, but you know a, a couple of folks from work would come along from time to time um it, yeah it, it actually it caused more problems with my bandmates than it did with my work mates or work in general they were more ticked at me that I, I i wouldn't necessarily be around at certain times or maybe i couldn't help load the van uh like <laughs> load the drums um or i you know just various times when i just wasn't available i wasn't as available as i I would have been otherwise, uh, but yeah, it didn't really impede too much. I mean, the, the funny thing about playing music, and I'm sure a lot of people talk about this, is you have no money, and then as soon as you have money, you have no time. That's kind of the classic. That that's what happened. I mean, we were able to rent a, a studio, like a rehearsal space, in the end later again, uh, which I also think is now luxury condos. But uh, you know, it was just being able to find time when I could actually be there and rehearse was, was difficult. What were the aspirations for the band when you were starting out? What did you what What did you all want, or were your <laughs> different things from it? Well, so the first band I think was just a mishmash of all of us kind of dipping our toe in the water of, for for various reasons. So Eric, who formed the band, came from New Jersey, and I think he was kind of trying to learn the scene down to the Lower Manhattan slash Brooklyn kind of kind of scene, and um, the bass player was. A very cool guy who, who who just genuinely liked playing bass and hanging out um and, and music etc 
me i was yeah i was I, I was on the same page and just trying to like dip my foot in the water see what see what was out there um it was actually eric that ended that band he'd found a new bass player and i think yeah that he wanted to work with and so myself and and the bass player todd we we said well we should carry on you know and he found us then a drummer also from burlington vermont um who'd played with the kind of an inf fairly infamous local band up there uh it was called the magic is gone um the, the, the guy the lead singer i think he was in other bands too but uh so he'd moved down to new york so we started a little three 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 person band and i i mean i just don't know if there was any aspiration it was just to kind of have fun and be cool i think I, I i just wanted to be a cool person and be that one that had had gigs and you know like maybe maybe a cd or two to show for it um i did i mean i think i i told you guys that i did i was interested in sort of the algorithmic nature of music like i do think some i mean that's what i do any anyhow these days but um so i did have the songs kind of analyzed for hit potential by a by a small startup that was going at the time and I, I was really interested in the way people perceived music and, and what made a good song. And, and I was, you know, I sort of was going down a little bit curious there and, you know, what led to that hook that, that would be catchy, like what made a catchy tune. Um, obviously, it would have been great if someone would have just walked in and said, wow, you guys, you should you should play. Do you remember that show? The OC was on at the time and they had like all sorts of little bands that came through on the TV, on the TV show. And, yeah, of course we would have jumped at something like that, but <laughs> we weren't delusional. You know, it was, uh, it was, um, it was, there was, there were other priorities. Let's say. I don't think it was ever a, a huge priority to, um, to, uh, to make that a sort of life choice. Um, but it was fun. Like we did end up playing, I think one or two shows in Boston in the end and, and in Philadelphia down in Fishtown. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just for fun. I, I, I suppose that's the answer. <laughs> just for fun. And it was, it was really fun. Um, it was just a different way of kind of seeing the world—not in the world, but like seeing things um, and and knowing what what happened at these music studios and knowing what happened at a gig and knowing what happened backstage and and yeah. And I really enjoyed just writing. I really enjoyed recording. Uh, I was never very good at actually doing recording myself. I never went down that route. Um, heavily reliant on a on an engineer there i didn't even know what mastering was before the before the second um, we, we recorded so um but yeah it was it was really fun um nice creative outlet i think at the time yeah you, you you mentioned the um having the songs analyzed now i've, I've never come across anything like this before we were talking, <laughs> ben and i were talking about it. it's not something that we've that we've come across before so can you explain a little bit more about what that was and 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 what that process involved and what you found out uh yeah uh i think i just i saved the files so the process was that and i forget how i'd heard about um the company and i looked them up uh, before we started before as we were chatting and um, I don't think they exist anymore or potentially they've been bought, but the, the pitch of the company was that they'd analyze, um, they'd analyzed all these songs for various attributes and then they'd plot the songs on a kind of, I think it was in the 20s, some sort of 20 something dimensional hyperplane. And they'd look for clusters of these attributes that, that appeared in hit songs. And so then you could send your song off, um, and it would analyze your song to see if it had 
attributes that fell within these clusters. And obviously the more that fell within these clusters led to you getting more points, I suppose. And they'd, um, they'd basically say like what the hit grade of your song is or was. Um, interestingly enough, I, I think I mentioned, I, I actually have two versions of that song or write one that we recorded the first time and one more that we recorded the second time. They're not terribly different, um, but the first one got a very high, high score. The second one got a very, very mediocre score. So I'm not sure what I was missing on the second version. I actually think it's better. But um, uh, yeah, that was that was the idea behind it. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of always thought the tune was somewhat catchy. Other people, you know, I wasn't. But uh, I, I, I don't know if the algorithm had much value as it turned out but again it was a field that I was interested in so it seemed actually it would have been a field that I would have been interested in going down but it seemed like a lot of heavy lifting I was just say did you share the results with the guys in the band yeah they all thought I was bonkers (laughs) 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 as far as you know I spent so much time just trying to be not be too dorky that you know but I just couldn't help it um (laughs) they uh yeah they were like oh that's nice Sarah um, <laughs> but it was, it was interesting. It gave the first time around. It definitely gave me some confidence in what I was doing. <laughs> so get this validation by someone saying, "Look, I've run it through this algorithm." It's you know. But I wish they'd told us actually what they could have done is told us like which songs were in the cluster that your song was song was also in. But then again, if you think about a song like say Bohemian Rhapsody, like no way is that in any clusters. But it's, it's obviously a big hit, right? So so how can you possibly measure that? Um, Again, it kind of goes back to my theory of some people writing mathematically and some people writing just by feel. And when you're when you're actually writing, do you kind of do you picture the kind of um, the structures in <laughs> in front of you in your head? I have done it before. Actually, written an algorithm that says like doing a bit of a random walk where you say, okay, you know, you start, you kind of like say these are the chords I want to use, and I know this chord can come after this chord, and kind of walking through in that way. Um, and then just putting a random like sequence over the top. I mean, it wasn't anything good by any means, but it, it, I do, you know, I do think it's something. I do think it's something people do as well these days. Obviously, we're in mm. much more of a machine learning like AI kind of environment. And there's definitely songs that I hear like that could have been written by a computer. Um, I was I was watching the um, uh, Flaming Licks docu- documentary last night, and they did wrote one melody where they they wrote a musical stave out and they wrote the notes randomly and then they turned it over and reversed it and said whatever comes out is going to be the melody for this song and do you know which uh, song it was actually was a big flaming lips fan as well at the time um i can't it was off it was off the soft bulletin because it was was off the little pitchfork documentary about the making of it and i can't remember um i think it might be spoonful way to turn or something like that on i could be wrong could be wrong (laughs) that's that was actually i do remember my dad telling me once about some sort of contest that held is held in Vienna every year. Well, he would have told me this a while ago, but it was held in Vienna every year to come up with a truly original melody. And I don't know if they specify the number of notes, but I think no one's ever won it. I think there is that, you know, I mean, there's a limit, right? If you kind of come up with a certain, you know. But I think the flaming lips can get away with a lot, just given their presence. <laughs> They've got a completely free pass. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they spent about 20 years earning that free pass, didn't they? They, they deserve did. it. They, <laughs> they well and truly deserve yeah. it. They put the hard time in. Absolutely. Yeah. Did the, uh, the, 
the analyses of your songs uh, affect the way that you went about writing music? No. Not at all? <laughs> not one bit. I definitely struggled writing music. I did, it did not come naturally to me. But then every song, every so often a kind of little refrain would pop into my head. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. But I definitely, yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't, I'm not, yeah, it wasn't a sort of process or anything like that. It was just every so often I'd wake up like with a little song in my head or I'd, I'd, one would come to me and that was it. And I'd try and build a song around it. But, uh, I'm, just, I'm just kind of like mentally going through all the, all the songs, but pretty much say they're all like that. When we had the band, it was, it was definitely helpful because, you know, I'd have this little piece, but I just have no clue what to do with it. Um, and Todd on the bass was, was pretty helpful with kind of, he was, a, he kind of like was a bit more free reigning. I think I was always stuck in my like a uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, or chorus, or whatever it was. And, and he was far more free and just would go off and do a bass riff or say, we can just do an explosive noise here, wall of sound, and then completely go into this other song that you wrote before that you didn't, you know, so he was, he was pretty helpful in that way. Um, there's definitely, if, if you listen to everything, there's definitely some that you can you can spot his presence on but yeah most of the time it was just this quick thing that would come into my head and then coming up with a very theory driven way of creating a chorus or a verse around it what um what brought that band to an to an end then sarah oh um probably my job um i think it just got too much every for everyone everyone was everyone got fed up with each other i mean it's like being in a relationship with two people or three, depending how many people are in the band. And trying to find time to rehearse got more and more difficult as we got older, uh, people got on with their lives, uh, you know, new friends, girlfriends, like we all came together for a bit. And then, um, and then yeah, the time got more and more spaced out. I, I'm trying to think if it became tougher to get gigs, like a lot of the places we played at um, shut. Uh, so then it was like, okay, do we go? And then, you know, obviously the, these managers that I was telling you about, they probably all got proper jobs or like, uh, <laughs> I guess their jobs actually would, I, I still don't know what the motivation was behind those guys. Um, and then actually the, the financial crisis happened. Uh, and I, I just, I left New York for a little while, but we were, we were kind of coming to an end before that. Um, yeah, just general getting older life kind of thing. I did actually record, I have a very good friend in London who was working at a studio up in um, Kilburn. And he, I kind of came over one November and rented some studio time from him and did a little, little acoustic sort of uh, collection of all the songs that I'd never really recorded with the other band. So that was fun. So I was still kind of doing stuff, but mainly on my own. It's a lot easier that way. So you're still feeling a draw to make music and, and write and record? Uh, I did then. I think right now, not so much. Uh, but honestly, if, I'm pretty fungible. So if the right people came along, I'd, <laughs> I'd probably probably do it. Um, but it's not something I've been seeking out. No. So that particular adventure of recording those song, the acoustic songs, um, was that just a personal thing to get them down in a version? Yeah, and it was, yeah, definitely. And it was kind of a chance to spend time with Dan. Um, he put some he put a pretty interesting spin on some of them, um, which was really fun. And he added some solo. I mean, he's a great musician as well. He can really riff off stuff. Again, not so much like me, uh, but yeah, just get them down. Just be in the studio again. Like you know, have, have those days. 
you know, it's just like same, same reason. But the, for me, it's the same motivation as to what takes me to the mountain to go snowboarding for the day. I think it's just like, uh, enjoy that, enjoy that scene. You were saying if the, if the right people were around, you'd, you'd jump back into it. I wouldn't want to pretend to be too young again. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what, what I would I'd be interested in actually playing piano a little bit more. I haven't had a piano in years, um, but that would be nice. I think singing for me is going to be limited to karaoke uh from now on but you know i actually also tried to learn the drums i always thought that would be a nice position for me to be in in a band and you know everyone always needs a drummer they're uh they're pretty in, in high demand but I, so i lived out in bermuda for a couple of years for a job and just didn't know anyone had very little to do so i took myself off to the music shop and tried to try to learn drums but i so I, I think i had the rhythm but the rhythm stayed in my head it didn't reach my hands or feet. <laughs> so, uh, so on the whole, it, that wasn't that was a bit of a burst. I think yeah. it's the best place to be on the stage is behind the drum kit. Was that say. your role at the time? It is now, but I okay. didn't I didn't come to the drums until or to walk out onto a stage and play the drums until I was forty. Prior to that, I was other. I'd been a singer and a guitarist and a bass player, but drums is sit behind the drum kit is the best. So that was my plan. I would have liked that to be my final evolution, but or iteration. But yeah, I found it very hard to, especially with my feet. I, I really had no, not a good feel <laughs> for being in time with my feet and hands. Yeah, my, uh, I, I I ignore my left foot completely. Would be my tip to you. Don't <laughs> <laughs> bother with it. <laughs> Is that the hi hat one? The, yeah. the hi hat, the left, right, and the, the base is the right. <laughs> I yeah, wish someone yeah. would have told me at the time. No, <laughs> maybe I'll give it another go. Um, oh, definitely you should. At least to days. at least to walk out onto a stage and get sit behind the drum kit is a brilliant feeling. All right. To do it to do a show, yeah. I think having drumsticks was quite a good feeling. Just walking around the walking around town with drumsticks in my hand. Yeah, me. yeah. Tucked in your back pocket. <laughs> me. <laughs> do you miss playing live? Did you did you enjoy the experience of playing those shows in in New York? Oh yeah, definitely. And and funny thing, I just don't ever remember being nervous, which was maybe 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 we had too many beers beforehand. I you know don't remember that, but no, it was really fun. Um, you know, even playing in the studio, just being able to be that loud, you know, it's one of the constraints of a drum kit. I've always lived in apartments, pretty much, and you can't really have a drum kit or a or a massive amp. So it was fun to kind of always have that wall of sound and kind of um and the atmosphere and everything about yeah about the um kind of playing on stage at a dive bar was was just great it was really fun um i uh i don't know if i'd want to do it now again it would it was good to do it when i was young i i'm not sure where, where the ideal scene is now obviously there's no scene now but where the where it's going to land um something i was kind of was kind of fancied the idea of being in a cover band just because you know so, I don't know if you ever went to see your friends play and I mean obviously I had plenty of friends that played and you know you had to listen to their kind of music and I once remember my friend of mine turning to me and saying god don't you wish it was a cover band <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> wouldn't be so bad what did uh, um, your other bandmates go on to do are they still playing so actually Todd the, the drum uh, oh the bass player sorry uh he now has two children. He lives up in Seattle. 
And I think his his son plays. Well, actually, I know his son plays the drums because I've seen the pictures on Instagram, which is which I think is pretty great. Um, and uh, I'm sure Todd's still jamming with him. Uh, Tom, the drummer, I don't know so much. I would think he's still playing again. Drum. He was a very good drummer, and they're, they're in general in fairly high demand. Um, Eric, the other guy, he has two children now. Uh, I, I asked him just the other day if his daughter was playing the recorder yet, having found all my recorders. I had, huh. uh, which I think, yeah, she's you know she's starting. So I think we're we're kind of waiting to see what the next generation does. Um, yeah, everyone, I mean, obviously, right now, everyone's a little bit scattered. Eric actually got into building and kind of making guitars a little bit, uh, setting them, you know, kind of thing, and, which, it, you know, I'm, I feel terribly bad. I have a one of my more prized possessions was this Gibson SG that they, they did a line, especially for women, <laughs> and which I bought. And then it was in Bermuda with me where it was quite damp, and I haven't dared open the case because I'm just... I don't know what I've done to this guitar. But... You, you need to go after you come off this line. You need to go and open, <laughs> open that yeah. case up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah bring, that, uh, bring, that, bring that guitar out and take it to someone. I will, yeah. It's, I mean, it's actually all lined up. I have some friends. I mean, being in LA now, I have some friends that are into producing, et cetera. Um, but yeah, these days I, I sit next to my desk. It's actually over there. But I have a baby Martin, like one of those very small Martin acoustic guitars that I probably bust out about once, twice a week. Uh, one of the cats just goes running when she sees me. <laughs> it's a, you know, and I have a little, yeah, have a beer and just pick up a song and start singing. But what uh, what do you play when you pick up when you pick up your acoustic? What do you what do you play? So <laughs> what was I doing? Um, don't know. I should check my browser history. I think I was the last time. Well, one of the times I remember playing was this was relevant just because of the election. But when Hillary Clinton lost the election last time around there's a t tv show here called saturday night live it's filmed in the so they had her as the cold open playing the piano uh alleluia so i kind of pulled that up because this time this last saturday just just happened they had uh, alec baldwin's donald trump character sitting at piano and we were kind of <laughs> the thing was like i play alleluia but actually he played macho man <laughs> which was pretty in line and, and it was pretty good but so i was watching that and then i was like oh i should watch the hallelujah one as well and then so i got out you know it's always this kind of like train of events that that gets me somewhere but yeah that, i think that was the last thing i was doing on saturday night well sarah thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast really appreciate you giving up your time and uh and your music for us to share um, can we just finish off with you introducing the song, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, the, the song is called All Right. It's um, it's another little melody that came into my head in the shower, uh, actually, in my studio apartment on East 11th. Um, I think I was thinking at the time that I had been upset or annoyed about something, and the annoying thing that happens to me when this is the case is that I cry quite easily. Uh, it's not always the case that I'm as upset to be crying that I need to be crying but it's unfortunately something that happens um and it was my friend Eric who helped me kind of carve it into a, a song back in 2004 thanks Sarah yeah thanks Sarah
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>